Hey, I'm Jason Wood, the VA Loan Guy and host of the Armed and Ready podcast. Please come and check out this exciting episode we have for you. Hey, and welcome to another episode of the Armed and Ready podcast. I'm your host, Jason Wood, the VA Loan Guy. Today, we have Navy veteran Tony Teravainen with us, who's also running a nonprofit, has a really, really cool story, and can't wait to share it with you guys. So, Tony... Thanks for uh, coming today, man, and being right. on the show. I appreciate the uh, appreciate the opportunity to share, Jason. Yeah, absolutely, man. So um, you're in the Navy, and you worked on subs, and I, I talk to people mm-hmm. a lot when I'm explaining VA loan benefit, right? And people want to know, like, how long do I have to serve before I'm eligible for the VA loan? And when we're in a time of war, like we've been in since we've been in the first Gulf War, um, technically, we're in a time of war. So it's 90 days, active duty service with your unit. And so I use the school you went to, the Navy Propulsion School or Nuclear Propulsion School because it's so long. Mm-hmm. And to give them kind of an idea, like you go to basic training, that doesn't count. Then you go to your school, whatever your job's going to be. And for, for you guys, it's a long school. So you're in the Navy about two years before you actually join a unit, start doing the things you were trained to do, right? right? So if you're looking for your VA loan and you went down your career field, you're like, two years, three or four months in before you're technically eligible for the VA loan. Um, so it's just an interesting dynamic and it's cool to have you um, on here. But I, I wanted to learn a little bit about your story. I always think like the submarine life is so different, right? And, um, and unique and um, just kind of learn, you know, what motivated you, what prompted you to, to join the military and, and walk us through this nuclear propulsion school that I talk about all the time and I know zero about. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, uh, it was a ride for sure. And, um, yeah, submarine life is very unique. Submarine sailors are very unique. And then uh, Navy nukes are unique in their own way. Yeah. So it, it definitely made for an interesting combination. But, no, I was just, um, you know, I was a regular kid. My dad was uh, my dad was an Air Force veteran. So he did 20 years in the Air Force. Smart we guy. Worked. Real smart guy. <laughs> he, uh, <laughs> the story goes that he actually he enlisted in the Air Force because his draft number, he pulled a low draft number, and he knew he was going to get drafted, so he figured he'd choose his fate. Oh, there you um, go. So, yeah, he went that route. So my childhood um, was on these giant, you know, SAC Air Force bases, and we always lived on base in military housing, and you just your life, we were, we were just part of the military. And he did, um, he did two tours in Europe as well. And then when he came back to the States, um, he finally retired. And, you know, military life sets you up for a lot of things. Yeah. But mostly it's survival related. It's, you know, packing it up, moving it, getting set up, trying to establish friends and, you know, jobs and, and all this stuff. And then, then you're packing it back up again and you're moving somewhere else. What it really doesn't focus on is the time it takes for the kids to really focus on what their life is going to be. So, um, yeah, I rolled into my second high school and my friends were like, so where are you going to school at? And I was, I am in school. They're like, no, you got to go to college. You got to do this stuff. So my friends on the football team there helped me figure out how to, you know, enroll in college, uh, take my SATs, get the applications out. And, and I got myself in college. And it was interesting. Uh, I got accepted at a couple different schools. And I defaulted to one where I knew I could work. I was working um, as an electrician. There was, no, there was no talk about how college was going to be paid for. I didn't really understand how much it cost. And I was really just... I was just surviving again with knowing so little about the world outside this environment that I grew up in. Yeah. And you just really don't understand it. 
and I got into college and I went went to Old Dominion University. I was in this engineering program and I was in these giant classrooms with 700 people. And I'm just like, do I have the right book? What class is this? What's he talking about? And it was just, it was just all fast forwarding. And I was just, I was just run over with all this. And, you know, I was on the rugby team. And finally, I just like, the only thing I was doing was, was going to rugby practice and rugby games. It was just like, school was just such a blur. I just couldn't keep up. And it was interesting because I look back on this today and I see a lot of our transitioning service members. I think about my transition out of the military. Think about my dad's transition out of the military, my brother's transition out of the military. And it's like my time at Old Dominion was my first transition out of the military. It's the exact same feelings that you have where you fit, but you don't fit. And it's like you understand, but you really don't understand. And, and one of the things I talk about to the military folks that I talk with is, you know, transition is, is um, and it, it might be a little bit different for, for the Air Force nowadays, but, you know, the, the Navy world that I grew up in, I might as well move to another English-speaking country when I got out because that's really how much you understand about the community you live in. It's like, yes, I got yeah. the language. I, know, I can figure out how to drive. I can get around. I can read the signs. But it's like you just don't kind of get the culture. You just don't get, like, the local vibe. You're just not one of the people because yeah. you've, you've always been living on the margins. When I was living here in San Diego, I was working out at the submarine base, and, uh, and I lived in, in North Park. And... If it was within, you know, a mile of the road I took every day going back and forth to work, I knew about it. When I got out, I ended up getting this job in Rancho Bernardo. I was like, is that even, is that even a commuting distance? I had no idea where I had to like get a map, like a paper map and find out where this was. So it was, um, it was a challenge for sure. Um, coming to the end of that first semester in college, I, uh, I knew I couldn't, I just couldn't do it. And I was just going to walk away from it. And my my dad knew a my dad knew a navy recruiter through he was doing actually mortgage sales and stuff like that so um he said call this number and i called it up and it's like senior chief jones and i said <laughs> my dad said call you he laughed he's like who's your dad and i told him and he laughed even more he said come on down and it was the navy recruiter office you know long story short i was the dumbest guy to ever walk in there i was just again i was already submitting to the system like any like any good service member post boot camp Right. And uh, they said, what do you want to do? I said, I don't know. Do I have a choice? Do you have a catalog? And I was going through a catalog and I saw they had electricians. And I'm like, I'm an electrician. You've got electricians. I'll be one step ahead of the pack. And uh, they're like, we got a live one here. <laughs> and it was, uh, it was all fun and games. And we went back and took, uh, took the, the ASVAB or whatever test it was. Oh, yeah. And then, uh, and then all of a sudden, I was our best friend. It's like, do you want some chips? Do you want a Coke? You ever thought about the nuclear power program? And... Uh, so we talked about it, and at the end of the discussion, I went, so let me get this straight. You're going to teach me how to run a nuclear reactor. I can be on a submarine. You're going to pay me for this, and you'll give me a place to sleep before Christmas when I essentially go homeless and get kicked out of the dorms. He says, yeah. I said, sign me up. And that was, <laughs> I mean, that was my, and true to their word, Christmas Eve, I was on a train to boot camp. And uh, back then, all the nukes went to Florida uh, with the females. So that was... Uh, Fun in the sun for Christmas, Christmas in Florida. There you go. And then uh, nuclear power school was down there. And I didn't really understand how hard it was going to be. I didn't understand this big, all this pressure that a lot of the folks around me were feeling. I was just ignorantly not aware of. So that's probably how I got through the program. 
just not just kind of skating through and um a year plus down in florida a couple different schools and then i went to upstate new york for the land-based prototype training and i got lucky there i got a uh actually had like a submarine engine room sitting out in the woods just four nuclear reactors out in the woods and we go there to train and the one i got was a submarine engine room okay so and it was very much like the one i ended up going to uh, as my first command back in norfolk so i was able to to get in the groove really quick hit the ground running there's no uh, there's no extra bodies on a submarine there's no um there's no room for people that that aren't qualified to do a job so getting qualified, becoming a responsible member of the crew, and not just in your focus area, but kind of everywhere. So, you know, we're getting ready to go to sea. Somebody needs to bring the food on board. Somebody needs to do this. Somebody needs to do that. And uh, we all, so we work on the ship, on the boat-wide things. And then we'd also have our individual things that we'd have to take care of. And it was great. Um, I was on the boat for four years. You know, I did two deployments. Okay. And uh, first one was the beginning of the first Gulf War. We had an expedited. We moved up a, we moved up a six or seven month uh, med run, uh, about a month and a half. It's like we were going to go, then all of a sudden we came in Monday morning. And it's like we're leaving Friday. Oh wow! And it was <clears throat> it was mayhem on the pier getting us loaded out, and uh, guess across the ocean over to the med. And that was uh, that was a fun time. It was it was good. Uh, we left, um, I left that boat after our second deployment, we did a Northern, uh, kind of a, above the Arctic circle deployment. Oh, wow. And, uh, you can read about that deployment in a, a number of submarine espionage books. So we were the first submarine collision with a Soviet submarine that had just become Russia at that point. So it was kind oh of 92, so early 92. So it was kind of shaky time for everybody yeah but uh, it was the first one that the united states government ever um admitted to so we were what happened was it like was it a mistake or? um there's a lot of different stories out there it's obviously it's it's not declassified yet but uh, you can read about it and most of the stuff you read it's just it's just speculation that people put together gotcha um we we were um we were much more aware, I think, than, than a lot of those stories come back with. But it was, uh, we made it back, and uh, I transitioned off to my next career, which was out here in San Diego, to be a support work, uh, work as a nuclear planner, so kind of leading maintenance efforts on the nuclear systems on two submarine squadrons that we had here in, in San Diego at the time. It was about okay. know, probably 30 boats we had. And then it came time for me to go back again, and uh, I had been battling this, um, it's like stomach ache, is what it was. And it took, it took the Navy more than six years to diagnose it. When they finally diagnosed it, there's, you, sh- you, you can't be here. Oh, no. And I, um, you know, true to like every other veteran that has these problems, they figured it out pretty quick after me getting to San Diego. Um, and they're like, we got we to gotta, we gotta retire you. You, you. you can't do this. And I, I made any deal I could to be able to stay and do my job. It's like, I, you know, I won't be around hot reactors. I won't go on sea trials. I won't go to sea on the tender. I won't do this. I won't do this. Just, just let me stay and do my job. And, uh, and they did for another year or so. And then it came, you know, um, it came time to start talking to the detailer about my next boat. And they're like, no, that's, that's it. So 
they kind of pulled the plug on me and put me through this medical retirement process, which I, I was, was very sick. I spent a lot of time in the hospital. So I was like, at some point I couldn't do my job anymore anyway, but, um, this, the medical board process is just like a slow train wreck. And, uh, <laughs> I heard, yeah. and it, it, it's like, you know, it's going to happen. And then, and then all of a sudden I, I call in and the guy says, your paperwork came in. You don't have to come in. And I'm like, he said, you're out. I'm like, great. Where do you want me to go? <laughs> said, I don't care where you go. Just don't come here. Wow. And that was just like, like that. That huh? was it. So I was 26, retired. And really from the only life I'd known, I got this giant stack of paperwork that I have no idea what it says. And, um, and that was, that was my transition. It was. Wow. So when you were in your job in the Navy working on, you know, nuclear reactors and stuff, are you exposed to radiation and stuff when you're doing that? Yes. It's, uh, it's very well controlled. Okay. And it's not like the movies where you're wearing like a hazmat suit and you're inside the sub kind of thing. Uh, we right? have, yeah, we have those. I okay. mean, those are like, I mean, that's all glorified. I mean, if you're, if you're wearing one of those, you're either doing something, either it's a really bad day at work and a lot of people are going to die, or um, you're just doing like some type of maintenance or something like that or upkeep. Um, you know, anytime you open a system, you want all these different levels of containment and, and personal protective gear on. Gotcha. And things like that. So we do have to open the system to do maintenance on it or replace a valve or test this or change out filter media or whatever. And um, the... You know, nobody, nobody realizes how many nuclear reactors the military has because there's never been an issue with it. Knock on wood, there never is. And yeah. a lot of that is due to this training. And Admiral Rickover really started this, this nuclear power program with the Navy uh, in, back in the 50s. Uh, they realized, obviously, through the World War II, the, the, the power of the submarine and then its limitations. And its main limitation was this, you know, battery technology, diesel power having to be on the surface. It was a surface boat that dove. Why can't we make one of these a, a submerged vehicle that is out of place on the surface? Make just kind of flip the script. And nuclear power did that, and and uh, you know the the five seventy one came out, the Nautilus came out as the first nuclear power submarine, and uh, that or sister boat circumnavigated the globe within a couple of years, submerged completely, submerged. Wow! And it was it's kind of the new era. And they don't, they don't I mean because of the nuclear propulsion they don't need to be like refueled or Anything like that, do they? Um, so most of the boats up until modern day were designed to be refueled one time. After 20 years, they would get a new, new reactor core. Okay. And then they would last another 20 years for about the 40-year you know, the frame life of the boat. Um, the Ford was the first um, aircraft carrier that's been designed with a lifetime reactor, with a 50-year reactor in it. So okay. it won't we'll have to go through a three-year overhaul midlife to get, to get a new reactor core. Obviously, you have to fix other things on it, but... And I think the new submarines, they're focusing on that as well. Wow, it's, it's expensive to do, um, to, to do a refueling. And it kind of, it takes, you know, a very expensive asset kind of off the chessboard for a while. Yeah. So let's figure out how to invest a little bit more money up front and keep more assets on the table longer. I can only imagine like when they were diesel powered, like how refueling must have been such a pain in the neck, you know? Traveling around the world and you got to yeah. meet up somewhere. You gotta, and then they had batteries port. as well, so they could run... I mean, they ran off batteries when they were submerged. They would snorkel up top. So refueling was it's the same as the issue for the other, other surface boats, but they couldn't carry as much. Right. They also couldn't carry as much stores and as many torpedoes. And a lot of times, um, World War II, a boat would return because it ran out of torpedoes, and it came back to get torpedoes 
And they're like, okay, while you're here, let's give you some food and fuel. Water. Yeah. Um, I don't think their water-making capabilities are very good either. But, yeah, those World War II guys were hardcore. Um, as Memorial Day comes up on us, every year I make it down to that submarine memorial and, at NTC um, Park, the old boot camp down there. And um, 30% of the submarines in World War II were lost. Wow. And it was, uh, it's, it was just a lot of boats. And the average life expectancy was five war patrols. And I meet people that did 11. It's just like, that's a lot. I met this one guy at my church. And uh, he just stared at me and he's like, 147. I don't know if I can say shit cans, but I'm like, <laughs> what's that, OJ? And he says, that's how many depth charges we took. I took Whoa. in my 11 war patrols. I was just like, otherworldly. It was just amazing to think about those kind of days those times but those guys got it done and uh really proved how if it ever hits the fan um a submarine's where you want to be because um and a fast attack submarine's where you want to be because they're the ones running around going to cause trouble and, and take the take the offensive side yeah not kind of that defensive side but. so what's it like what's life on on the ship like i mean you're cooped up in this tube yeah. for i mean you guys are usually out for months at a time right uh, it depends. The longest I've gone was that northern run. We actually didn't hit any ports. Um, so we were, I think we were like 72 days submerged. That's a long time. Yeah. Long time. So, I mean, I got to imagine you guys go a little stir crazy and being cooped up that long. So what do you, what do you guys do to keep yourselves occupied? You just or, work. Yeah? You just work. Um, you know, the, the fast attacks don't have a gym, don't have a library. The library is like a little locker with, you know, 50 books in it or something jammed in there. Um. So I was on a 688, which then was, was the newest one. Um, but the Virginia class is, is very comparable to it. Okay. And I think we would have like one piece of exercise equipment that somebody would we'd strap it down in the engine room somewhere between some steam turbines or something. <laughs> and it would always break halfway through. So exercise wasn't the big gig. Um, the Navy has since shifted to eight-hour watches on submarines. We were doing sixes. So... Um, normally it'd be three section duty. So you do six hours on a watch. So sitting in a panel, you know, operating the submarine somehow. And then you get off watching eat and you'd probably do four or five, four or five hours of maintenance, studying, um, upkeep, planning, something, something related as an electrician. You know, we had, we had to take care of all electrical equipment on, on the entire boat, not just the uh, electrical generation equipment or the, or the reactor operated pieces. So we'd have lots of work to do. Um, if you stayed up late and you wanted to eat again, cause they would serve meals every six hours. So 12 and six, there was a meal. Okay. And once you leave port, you set your watch to Zulu time. So Greenwich mean time and, uh, and 6am is always breakfast. So no matter what it looks like outside, it doesn't matter. So you could eat breakfast, um, and then go look out a periscope or something and see it's pitch black in the middle <laughs> of the night. But, um, yeah, so you. You'd, you'd wake up, you'd eat, you'd go and watch, you'd get off, you'd eat, and then you'd probably do four or five hours worth of work, and then you'd clean up and jump in the rack, and then somebody will come wake up for your next watch, wake up and eat. Just kind of groundhog day. That's and crazy. then And then you figure it's like you're taking this motor home on a long road trip. So it's, it's never just the same every day. It's like something's got to be worked on. Something's broken. There's something else going on. Um, when you're on a long deployment, You'll pull in and you'll find a tender somewhere and you'll, you'll do larger maintenance items that you guys, that y'all can't fix to fix yourselves. 
a lot of people are specially trained on the submarine, uh, and there's a lot of equipment that's stuck away. Um, okay. So one person's always trained as a machinist, and there's like a small lathe if we ever had to make anything. Some people are trained to you know, go inside the reduction gears, and we have people that are divers and people that are uh, nuclear-trained welders just in case we have to we have to do this stuff. And it's kind of like you fixing your own car, and it's like, ah, this is too much. I need to take it into the shop. And that's why you go find a submarine tender, and, and uh, there they have a bunch of shops that specialize in these different, in these different areas. Somebody gotcha. needs to rewind a motor or something like that. Okay. Work, but yeah, we did some crazy stuff. We, uh, you have a bearing that goes out on a big motor or uh, a big generator. And if you have to, you got to replace that stuff at sea. And it's, it's pretty sketchy sometimes. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. Any cool, uh, any cool ports you guys got to go to? Um, that's the one thing about submarine life. You're not made to be seen. Yeah. So um, you don't, we wouldn't go on a patrol to, um, to to do port calls, we're not you know we're not this this obvious presence of power like a carrier group. In fact, if we were in Naples, Italy, or something like that, and a carrier group was coming in behind us, it's like rally the troops, we're out of here. Like we don't we don't need to be near this place when when a carrier task force pulls up, hmm. carrier group pulls up. Interesting. Yeah. So, uh, but we did uh, did Italy a couple times, different places in Italy, um, France. Gibraltar was always a big stop when you were leaving the Med. Um, you could um, take on the last of stores there, and it's kind of, kind of like your last truck stop before you head home on, yeah. on, a, on your motorhome trip. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that was, uh, that was that. And then the northern one we went on, we didn't stop anywhere. Uh, a lot of stuff down in the Caribbean. So oh, you okay. go down there and, and do, um, you know, there's a lot of testing. Um, areas down there after you come out of an overhaul or something like that you'll take the boat down there and kind of shake it down folks are out there listening to you they got some acoustics out there and uh, cape canaveral was always a cool place to pull into we did that like over a fourth of july one year so we all cruised over to i guess it was daytona beach or something oh that's fun hanging out on the fourth of july at daytona beach is pretty fun yeah um but yeah that was that was the navy life you don't hear much about like submarine conflicts you know, like at least in modern day, I mean, we hear about like all the world war two stuff, you know, like interactions with subs and subs shooting each other and shooting other things and stuff like that. But we don't hear much about that anymore. Is, is there much engagement in the sub life these days, or is it pretty much kind of what we see on the news with kind of like airstrikes and things of that nature? Um, a lot of ways to answer that. Um, so my statement about it's the place to be when, if anything really happens, the place to be is on a submarine at sea. It's the safest place. Uh, there's plenty that happens with submarines. And the reason all these countries now are increasing their submarine forces, now obviously I'm not speaking as a national strategist, but all these countries now are trying to increase their submarine forces because that is the most deadly asset out there. And everything else looks good on paper, looks good to the eyes, but they're just giant targets. And we would do. We would war game, we still war game, and the submarine is always the most deadly asset. Hmm. We've gone out to do war games with one submarine. We've, we've sunk entire task forces by ourselves and never been caught. Wow. And we had to you know, stay inside this small, tiny box and not go below this depth. And they still couldn't find us while we managed to, to get all them. That's really cool. So it's, it's, they're hard to find. And as the technology improves, um, 
as other countries, the adversary countries continue to improve, there's there's plenty of cat and mouse games going on out there. I can imagine, yeah. And it's 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 all about um, making sure you know you can find the other people. So what's it? How do you how do you get as ready as you can? Yeah, and that's really what it has to be. Interesting. Now, is, is stealth something that is, you know, I mean, hear about stealth like for aviation and stuff like that for avoiding radar and and those types of things. Is that is that a thing in the sub world or mm-hmm. is it? Yeah, and it's not stealth as far as um, radar detection that with with the airplanes and the in the in the, sh- in the surface ships that they're looking at. This is stealth as in acoustics. Gotcha. So you need to be quiet. You need to be undetectable. So how much noise is your boat making? How quiet is it when it goes through the water? How fast can you turn the propeller without causing cavitation or making some type of noise or some kind of flow noise? So um, it's, it's about keeping it quiet. And then it's, it's also about, um, you know, I think most submarines today are coated with different types of products that um, even if they, if they were to get pinged on by some type of active radar, sonar, um, it's, it's not going to send the reflection back as clear as it would if it was just like plain metal or something like that. Gotcha. So yeah, it's definitely trying not to be found. And some of those movies, um, some of those submarine movies out there, they kind of play it up a lot more. But sure, yeah. when you take a boat down to test depth, and she starts creaking, and the um, Das Boot is probably the most real realistic submarine movie out there. Okay, I haven't and, seen that. And those those guys, you know, they're holding on to stuff, and they got these wide eyes, and for some reason, you always like look up, and you're like, because you think it's gonna every the the ceiling is gonna cave in or something, and, it, and you're in a, a cylinder, so it doesn't really matter where it's gonna pop from, but that's just kind of the feeling that you have. When that thing goes down and it creaks and moans and you know you start thinking about how small you are and how big the ocean is and uh anytime you get into these situations it's 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 just it's kind of a humbling feeling and you're really at the mercy of of the elements and you're going to do your best to survive so that you can't execute your mission and when emergencies do happen and they do um, all the time, you know, to different degrees. Mm-hmm. Um, the the folks on the boat have to react to save the boat, to save the crew, um, and to make it home. The the two most recent you know submarine that we've lost um, post World War Two. You know, there's just there's just not a ton of information, and one thing happens. It could be one person doing one thing wrong. It could have been somebody in the shipyard did something wrong. It could have been a design flaw. It could have been a lot of things. But if you can't fix it the boat goes down and you know uh, Indonesia just lost a boat and that hits everybody in that submarine world hard and it's kind of that that recognition that you know we were there and it doesn't yeah. matter you know the Soviets have, or the Russians have lost a number of boats um, so Argentina lost a boat and you know they were just in some bad weather up trying to snorkel and they took a lot of water down the hatch and all flowed to one part of the boat the boat gets out of out of whack and it just gets kind of drugged down and does yeah. weather really impact you guys when you're submerged? Do you, does the weather have <laughs> yeah, much of an you impact? Feel it. Yeah. Yeah. State, state five C. I mean, Atlantic is a nasty place and the med gets pretty rough. Problem with that is, um, 
if you're if you're even if you're down you know four or five hundred feet and it's rough seas the boat's going to be rocking it doesn't really have a keel like like you know like a sailboat or, or a surface ship so you're just kind of rolling around in fact you got a big sail on top kind of pushing you around yeah so you'll keep rolling but at the end of the day you still have to do your work so if you need to carry a trash bag around with you while you're throwing up doing your watch you know so be it or if you're sitting in this control room doing it and now everybody next to you and it's, it's like there's minimal you know the birthing areas start to smell like puke and if you're up on the surface because you're not allowed to dive yet because there's not enough water under you and you're in a big storm that thing's just rocking bad and it's the whole boat just smells like throw up and it's oh, gross it's, it's pretty bad and it's like that I mean, everybody's like mercy mercy pukers oh my gosh yeah well tell us a little bit about so your transition so you get medically retired Mm-hmm. Right. And then um, what was next for you? Did you, I mean, you had this big pile of paperwork, didn't know what you were going to do with that. And did you have a plan or any idea where you were headed next? I didn't have a plan. Um, I kind of go back to that survival thing. And I sat down and I said, you know, I need to do something. So it's, well, well, I'll go back to, you know, and where's home? Um, we've moved so many times. So I said, uh, well, there's, I left Virginia to come here. And I said, well, there's, no bugs here, and there's bugs in Virginia. There's no humidity here. There's humidity in Virginia, so I'll stay here. So that was that was the there great <laughs> decision there. And then it's like I need a job, and somehow I think I got into a tap class, a transition class, um, as a civilian. And I'd, I'd ran into um, some other submarine nukes there, and we were talking during the class. And he pointed out that this recruiter was there trying to recruit him, but he was moving back to Texas. So I like I literally went up to the recruiter and, and I said, "Well, I did what he did." And the recruiter looked at me and said, so you can fix robots? I looked at him and I'm like, I didn't know anything about robots. He said, yes, I can. <laughs> <laughs> so I went and took this test and, and I got a call back. And I got a job as like a backshift maintenance worker at a manufacturing, a Sony manufacturing facility here in North County. And um, that was the job in Rancho Bernardo. And I stayed there 12 years. So it was good. It was good because it, a lot of the other maintenance workers like myself were in a very familiar environment. They gave us a toolbox. They said, "Those are your books. This is the room. Red light's bad. Green light's good. Keep it going. Keep the." We were making television tubes. Right? Keep the flow going. And I knew in the room before me there was another maintenance worker. This is all automated. So it was all robots, conveyors, machines, processing equipment that was all being run by computers. And... um in the room before me and the room after me was another guy like me who was, you know, maybe some sonarman or fire control tech or electronics guy. So all from kind of these technical trades from the military. Okay. And we got thrown into this environment and we all kind of transitioned out together over the course of a couple of years. Um, as, as we went through that cycle, I realized that I needed to, I couldn't get promoted without a, without a degree. So I started going back to school and then every time I got a degree, my, I'd get promoted so we closed the factory about 12 years later. I left there. I was the chief maintenance engineer. Oh, right. I'd done uh, three degrees and a lot of like Six Sigma certifications and stuff like that. Yeah. And so, yeah, Sony was good to me. We closed the factory. I laid myself off. I ran my own businesses for a while. Um, finally got in with Booz Allen Hamilton doing strategy and process improvement work. I went to grad school while I was at Booz Allen. That's a big company, too. Yeah, it was good. I really enjoyed it. Had a good time. They're the ones that um, where I found a volunteer opportunity to start working for a nonprofit. I didn't know anything about this nonprofit sector um, as far as as far as a business. I had experienced it um, while I was kind of running my own businesses after Sony, 
the wildfires, my, my house burned down oh, wow. during the wildfires. So FEMA would come set up all these big uh, uh, centers and they, everybody would have these booths. And I remember just like walking into these big giant gyms and stuff. And it's like all these booths and it's like, you know, so security administration, DMV, the VA. I mean, it's just like hundreds of different agencies. I'm like, who are all these people? And some were really helpful and some weren't. Um, and I kind of understarted it, you know, wh what can I get out of this? Do I deserve it? And again, it's back to a lot of this, you know, veterans don't want to take unemployment because they feel like it's welfare. And it's that yeah. same kind of mentality still in my head that's just been ingrained in me forever. And I'm like, well, am I taking advantage of these people? And they're like, no. But then I started thinking about it. It's like, I really needed the help. And, you know, the tax assessor's office was there. And he said, did your house, burn? you know, it's full or partial was kind of the question. It's like, it's gone, full. So he says, yeah, what's your parcel number? We should adjust your, what you're paying in tax for your house. And I was like, I don't know my parcel number. And he's like, this is what I've got, what I'm yeah. wearing, you know? <laughs> and uh, he says, what's your address? I gave him the address. He pulls it up. And he's like, is this your parcel? And I said, yeah, that's it. He prints out the paperwork. He fills it out. He goes, so we'll get rid of these improvements, and this is your new tax basis. I'm like, all right. He said, sign here. I'm like, what else do I have to do? He's like, that's done. I'm like, well, that's pretty smooth. Yeah. So I go to the next thing. It's Social Security Administration. They're like, did you lose your Social Security card? I'm like, yeah. And they're like, fill out all the paperwork, get this done. The next was like DMV, and they're like, you know, your car titles need to get regenerated, this, that, and the other. I'm like, yeah, well, this is pretty smooth. I'm in the groove. And then some people were just like, they want tons of information, and they wanted me to do all the stuff. I'm like, I don't, I don't have time for this. There was two agencies I met. One was DAV. Um, and I said, well, what can you do for me? Because I'm kind of in the groove of it. And he says, full or partial? And I said, full. My house burned down. He says, I got $1,000 for you. I'm like, why are you giving me $1,000? Yeah. Because <laughs> your house burned down. <laughs> I'm like, so? <laughs> and he says, well, this is going to help you. He says, we want to help veterans. Um, and we had already established that I was a veteran. And then I came back the next day, and the same guy called me back over. And he says, you have a wedding ring on. He says, yeah. He says, it says you're single in your VA file. I'm like, so? He says, well, you get disability, right? I said, yeah. He says, well, you'll be getting more if they know you're married. So he's got the paperwork ready. We fill out the paperwork. I'm like, oh, this is great. So uh, Jewish Family Services was another one. And she, um, I think they would give me like a $5,000 grant for things that weren't covered by insurance. And one of the things I had was an avocado grove. And the insurance company wouldn't touch anything with the grove or the equipment or irrigation or infrastructure or anything like that. So I, I told her that. And she says, yeah. She said, go get some quotes for what you need. And I needed, you know, a chainsaw and like garden tools and more irrigation parts. Yeah. Um, so I went and got these quotes and I faxed it to her like we did back in the day. <laughs> and machine, uh, she calls this? me back the next day and she goes, okay, go pick it up. Like, go pick what up? She says, everything you faxed me is paid for waiting for you. And Whoa. That's what I said. I'm like, you, you know, I'm not Jewish, right? She says, yeah, if you were Jewish, you'd get $10,000. <laughs> <laughs> I work with Jewish Family Services today, and I told them that story. And they know that. They remember that program. They don't have that program anymore. And I said, like, that was just, like, life-changing for me. And really, that, that occurrence, me having to be that person that needed to reach out for help. Um, I mean, I've never been rich, and I've always, we've always scratched to make it work. But we scratched and worked. Um, my parents probably had to do more scratching than I realized, but... Um, they made it work for us in a way that we, we weren't really aware of it. So when I started volunteering, when I was at Booz Allen, I started volunteering for this nonprofit that helped military families. I kind of had this, this service, this picture of what these FEMA centers look like and how they helped me when I had nothing. And it's like, 
Did I ever think I was going to go to a semi that's got Tide written all over the side of it and go in there and, and like, they gave me like some paper coveralls to wear and a place to change so I could like wash the clothes I was wearing and wow. then dry it. And they're like, hey, Tony, your clothes are ready. And I come in there, I get my clothes. And I, I, now I have clean clothes. Did I ever think I'd be in that place? It was like, no. And it's, so it's really this is window into a whole nother world that I never would have had exposure to. And uh, so I had this opportunity to volunteer to do a strategy for a, a nonprofit that worked with military families. Um, and they were, um, it wasn't anything specific. They just were, were supporting them. And then I, I stayed with them longer. They got me on the board of directors. I didn't know anything about how this whole thing worked, but I kept doing it. And then eventually that nonprofit kind of went sideways, more focused away from military families um, and more on other, other types of military support. And we wanted to stay with military families. And then they wanted to centralize the program back to Texas and dissolve kind of our local administration and our local responsibility. And we're like, that's not going to work. So we had a choice and um, everybody didn't agree with us. We kicked them off. <laughs> and at that point, we created STEP and we became independent. We said, we're going to do one thing, and we're going to do it good. We're not going to be all over the map. And it was really this financial crisis theme. Okay. So if a family is really in trouble financially, like, well, what's really in trouble? So how about, like, they're being evicted. Um, there's a tow truck falling. There's a repossession notice. Their electricity is getting turned off. They're in a verifiable financial crisis. They got a piece of paper that says they're going to lose a basic necessity, or it's already gone. Um, in there, we include, you know, diapers, diapers, wipes, cribs, car seats, food car insurance, you know, medical bills. It's like, what? And it's all kind of situational. So it's not black and white. So one right. of the things we said is we need to be like, we need to adapt our program to every individual. So our number one core value became do the right thing. That's what we're going to be driven to do, not just hit these two wickets for each person. Gotcha. Um, we're going we're gonna to hit the lower six pay grades, E1 through E6. Somebody says, you know, these people come to us, they'll go pick up their DD-214, and they came to us, you know, in this old agency, and we couldn't help them. It's like, yeah, because, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a nightmare on the other side, too. Um, so let's, let's take care of transitioning veterans, too, and, you know, defining that. I think we started at 12 months post-transition, but now we can help them before they get out, while they're getting out, because sometimes people like me don't know if they're in or out, and it's amazing how many people are like that. Yeah. And then, and then while they're getting their feet on the ground. So that became the program. And then it was like, let's just not do a Band-Aid. Let's make it so they never come back here. In fact, let's make that our priority to get them to a lifetime of financial self-sufficiency. Because to what end are we just going to hand out Band-Aids? Right? That, help, that helps them through the moment, but not for next month or the month after or the month after. Yeah. So it created this um, social, social work-based, um, behavior-based financial intervention program. My financial counselors are social workers, and they work to help each of these families change their financial behaviors. And it's, it's no different than any other chronic self-destructive behavior we have smoking, exercising, or not exercising, and these types of things where we just, we can't get our arms around ourselves to pull ourselves out of it. And that's really where we specialize. That's really cool. So you guys dig in and, and like teach them the basics of finance then to a degree, right? Like basics of finance and budgeting, but it's really 90% of the conversation is not about money. It's about behaviors. Okay. It's about how they, how they create goals, how they work to achieve them. And the social worker's job is to draw that, draw that out of them. So they create a budget. They create financial goals. They create a debt payment plan. Um, and they create a plan to, to make it work. And, you know, we've put about 7,000, 6,000 families to their program in the last nine years. 
And a year post-intervention, 90% are in a better financial position than even when they graduated. That's great. Yeah, so about half of them need some money infusion. So we'll write the check to the landlord. We'll pay for the transmission. We'll turn the car insurance back on. Uh, we spent about $2.2 million doing that. And we've been doing it here in Southern California for nine years. Okay. And right before COVID, during COVID, after COVID, we're expanding to cover Washington State, oh, which nice. is kind of our pilot. You know, can we, can we scale this in the same time zone, somewhere close, another 7% of the military up there. So it'll take us to 20% total. Yeah, it's a big chunk up there. It's a good-sized chunk. So that's kind of where we're going with it. Um, I was on that board when we founded it. I became chairman of the board because I was a strategy guy. Um, and then our, our CEO, our president, left, and I became interim CEO on uh, January 1st, 2014. And did it for a couple weeks, and then I just, took a, I just quit booze. I said, you know... Nobody else, I couldn't hire anybody to do the job. Nobody would take the job. The pay wasn't big enough. There's no benefits. It was way too risky, and nobody would take it. So if it was going to succeed, I needed to do it. Wow. So I, it's risky. Yeah, risky. So yeah, I went to my, my, I got divorced right after the house, about a year after the house burned down. Um, it's just the, the crazy pressures. It's just, it's just mayhem when that stuff happens in your life. So we ended up getting divorced. Um, and I was, I had just got remarried. So this was, I don't know, five or six years later. Um, I just got remarried, still living in a trailer on my property. My new house was framed, halfway framed up. And I went to, and she wants kids. Um, so she wants to quit working. I'm like, so <laughs> I'm thinking of quitting this Booz Allen consulting job and, and doing this nonprofit thing full time. Oh, man. She kind of rolled her eyes and she said, I knew this was coming. Um, she said, as long as I get my house and my babies, make it work. Wow. So that was kind of my driving force. And yeah, now I've been the CEO now for seven years, trying to get it to a place where I can extricate myself. And it's not about me as much as the agency. So kind of working on that. And where can I kind of land my part of the plane softly and then bring in the next person that, that has that experience to run a larger organization. Yeah. Um, kind of hand it all off to, to her or him. And then I'll go start my next chapter. That's really cool. So if, when you guys expand up to Washington, do you need actual like boots on the ground, like people up there? Yeah. So we've had volunteers up there working. We have some contractors. I'm actually sending um, one of my folks up there now. She's leaving Friday. Okay. She's going to drive up there. She's going to spend six weeks up there. We'll also drop in a job rack up there for kind of a first staff employee up there, uh, kind of our, our leader or nice. to be leader up there. And then. Yeah. Kind of a three-year plan to fill up an office. Be about six people. Okay. Got an office with the county up there, so we'll have kind of a, a brick-and-mortar shop that people like to see. Yeah, yeah, they like to see that. Now, how do you guys get the word out to the military folks so that they know you exist? Well, we have to get the word out on both sides. So we have to let the military families know, but we also have to let our donors know because because our clients don't provide our revenue stream. It's like right in this business, it's broken up, which was like a new concept for me to grasp once I volunteered to take this job. It's like, wait a minute, where does the money come from? <laughs> um, so we work closely with the military leadership. And that was one of the first things we did up there. And, and the Navy, the Marine Corps, the Air Force, or there's no Marine Corps, but the Navy, the Coast Guard, the Army, and the Air Force um, all gave us the big thumbs up. 
We talked okay. to the community. The community's like, yeah, this is really neat. There's nobody doing what you're doing. One of the, you know, the major things that we work on is kind of partnerships with the community. So we build those partnerships. And we're serving clients up there now. And we can do it from down here, uh, our social workers from down here. Just like you know, if somebody's at Camp Pendleton, they're not, we don't expect them to drive to Scripps Ranch to our office and see us. Right. So we have to meet them, you know, figuratively and literally where they're at in, in any situation. And, and, and give them every opportunity to succeed. I can't be the roadblock to their success. But they need to do the work. Yeah. They need to show up for it. But I need to make it as convenient as possible to, to allow them to be able to, you know, get over these challenges of, of fixing themselves moving forward. So learning what they need to learn. Um, so, yeah, we were up there. We had a, a crew up there. I had some social workers up there actually last week at a, a transition at the, on the Army base at JBLM up there. I guess they make about a thousand veterans a month. They don't have anything, any really good support programs for the veterans. So they want to start kind of focusing there. So we had a booth at their transition, at their transition piece, and I had sent one of my social workers up there to man the booth. And they said, "You can come back monthly." So that's a good start for us. Um, the Navy's obviously been very receptive. We know a lot of folks, from the Navy up there from down here. Yeah, that makes so sense. it's just uh, it's boots on the ground. It's a lot of shoe leather. It's personal relationships. I mean. 90 whatever 8% of the folks that come to us now come from a personal referral from okay. somebody. So all those people need to know about us and then they need to trust us enough to send and 25% of my folks will show up from a, a friend or coworker referral, right? Like 20% from their military supervisor. So it's like you know when when the gunny sergeant says you need to go to step to get this figured out or when Navy Marine Corps relief or one of these other relief societies you know, they're sending me their clients. They're sending me the people they care about, that they want to help, but they just know they're not the best resource and they trust that we're going to take care of them properly. And that trust needs to be there. Yeah. So we need to build that relationship with the military community up there. And it's, it's going well. It's easier to build it a second time when you have something to leverage. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. Yeah. And then at the same time, we're trying to build that relationship in the community that says, who wants to be part of, who wants to be part of this, you know, helping your local military, you know, young military and veteran families achieve a lifetime of financial self-sufficiency. And, you know, they all say it's a great idea and some raise their hand and want to talk more and, and some of them pull out their checkbook. Some of them come down and volunteer. Some of them help us collect diapers and stuff like that, backpacks. It yeah. all kind of helps. No, it's, it's really interesting and it's, it's so needed. And I have conversations with people about it a lot, you know, as far as, you know, what the military teaches us in the areas where they don't and like, you know, those personal behaviors, finance, things like that is an area where there really isn't a whole lot of time spent. So it's understandable how people can just get into bad cycles. It is. And when I did, I did, I was invited to do a Ted talk in 2018 and uh, I had to, I had to figure out how to get the audience kind of ready to support a military family. Is it's not something that people, a lot of people think that their just lives are taken care of and they're like, they're kept people and they're really not. Yeah. Um, so I started the speech talking about how miserable America's financial situation is. So three out of five Americans spend their entire paycheck or more each month and half of all Americans can't come up with $400 for an unplanned emergency. That's like America. Then every year, 200,000 of those people, right, 18 to 24 years old, joins the military. Pretty broad cross-section of America, you know, 
and every state class um, group is is represented fairly equally um, in the military. Then we rip them out of their home environment, rip them away from their families and their support systems. We move them every two to three years. We deploy the service member between half and a third of the time. 60 to 70 percent of them earn a low income wage. 50% unemployment, underemployment rate for the spouses. And then, oh, by the way, the military is the third most deadly occupation in the United States. So over the last 30 years, more service members have died from work-related accidents than any other cause. And only at a lower rate than, I think it's like loggers and fisher folk. Wow. <laughs> so it's dangerous. Your it head's got to be in the game. And we put all these additional stresses on the financial habits that average Americans have. So how do you really expect them to do any better? Right, and this is this is why I felt like we're they should be we're setting up for failure to some extent. Totally, yes, we give them plenty of financial education, but this is not an intellectual problem, right? I'm like literally the smart. I was literally the smartest person in the military, but I still had plenty of money problems, right? There's tons of financial education opportunities for the military. They just don't all work on all the people all the time. So what our program brings in is this, from this behavior aspect. Our program looks at it differently, um, and it's a way to pick up that. It's really like the bottom 1% of folks that come to us. They're just in these complex problems that need somebody to sit down and help them work through it emotionally, behaviorally, solution-focused. And that's where the beauty of the social worker comes in because they're, they're helping the people. And this time it's about money. Right, will help you get that budget, but they have to help them realize that they can control their money and inspire them to control their money and their spending and their financial goals and that part of their life. And that's really how we differ, but kind of do the same thing in complementing, you know, and in partnership with the rest of the community that does that. Yeah, well, that's super impactful. I got to imagine it's pretty humbling too, just to be working with these folks and seeing what they're going through. And, um, you know, if you, could share not not anyone's experience necessarily, but maybe just some advice for people who might be hearing this podcast or watching this podcast from stuff that you've experienced, right? Yeah. Through step, you know, what would be a couple key takeaways you could share with people that would be helpful? Well, one of the big, one of the big things I'll talk about um, with my military career is I got out feeling like I never had, I got out and I, and I, and I went pretty far in my life. And I was like, man, I wish I, people talk about these mentors. I wish I had some mentors. And uh, I look back on, on my time and I kind of look at now with older, wiser, semi-wiser eyes, uh, <laughs> or at least not as belligerent eyes. Um, it's like those people were there. I didn't recognize them for who they were when they were there. And it was me that missed it, not them. And I recognize now plenty of times people tried to steer me in the right direction in different ways. People tried to help me along. Uh, I, was, I was very successful in the military. I was very good, and I got a lot of good opportunities. That stuff just doesn't happen by itself. Right. Um, so recognizing those mentors around you and, and, and really truly listening to these wiser words. And like I said, a, a large amount of our folks come from their military supervisor. They'll, they'll be sent over. Sometimes they're brought over by their military supervisor. Sometimes they'll stop by and grab their wife and bring them over. And because they want, they want to help. And it's, um, I guess it, I would just say, just try to listen. 
And then the other say I would the other side I would say was it's okay to ask for the help. Yeah. Because you get the help, you know, and I would have never taken the help if I didn't need it before. And it it really changed how I see people that need help. And our veterans and our military service members are taught to be able to do it on their own, get it done, and prided on that and rewarded for that. And when they ask for help, that's not always seen as a positive kind of in their eyes. But in today's environment, it's it's becoming much more accepted but at the end of the day you have to be able to learn from other people other people's experiences move along and that means you need to accept the help and ask for help when when other people aren't overly offering it and then the last piece i would say would be with regard to finances it can be done the majority of folks we see you know the, the thousands of people that we've put through this emergency financial assistance program they know they need a budget that works. They know they need, they're like, duh, I need to make more than I spend. But they don't. Right. And, um, you know, Aristotle and, and Plato were the first ones to really talk about anything smart and record it, you know, 300 BC. And some of the stuff they wrote on was how man does what he likes, but not what he needs. And I think Aristotle said, um, it's just like your it's your it's your passions dragging your needs around by the tail, basically. It's like it's the, what you want to do and not what you have to do. Right. And we always we get caught up in that easy as humans, and we can do that. And when you can convince yourself, I can't change the situation, it becomes even easier. And so you just work in the survival mode. Um, you know, after the fire, I had terrible financial issues. So somebody in my office says that person's three months behind in their mortgage, and they didn't even know it. How can they not know it? I'll tell you how they can't know it because they can't change it. And that stack of bills just gets bigger and bigger and they need to be able to sleep at night and they need to feed their kids and they need to go to work and perform and they have to limit what they're focusing on. And it's not necessarily a, a bad thing. It's just how they're reacting to the environment. What we need to do is teach them they can affect that big stack of bills. Most of them think that everybody else can do it, but their situation is unique. The world has round pegs and all I got or round holes and all I got are square pegs. Yeah. That's what they really feel like. And what we teach them is they actually have these round pegs to go in those round holes. We teach them how to understand and make that work. And it can be done. People survive on, on every amount of money. And if you tell somebody who makes $100,000 a year to survive on 30% less, like no way I can survive on $70,000 a year. But the fact of the matter is, Folks are surviving just fine on $70,000 a year. But if you go to that person that's surviving on $70,000 and you say, you're going to get 30% less now, there's like no way I can do it on whatever the math is, $50,000. But there's people at $50,000 making it work who think they can't go down to whatever, thirty-five, And there's people that you know, are down there at twenty making it work, but they know they can't go lower. We, we have a hard problem going backwards in our minds and thinking we can make it work and make it happen. And we need, to, we need to understand that people do that every day. And for me to cut my spending by 30% so I can live within my means and achieve my saving goals and my, my debt reduction plan goals, it's a hard pill to swallow. But once you can kind of grasp that, then, then you can make your financial future work. And, you know, oh, by the way, what were those dreams again? You wanted to buy a house. You wanted to move back to Texas. You wanted to, I don't know, send $1,000 a year back to your home and Chicago to your parents so you can pay for their heating fuel oil so they don't freeze. 
I mean, there's just like everybody has their own needs. Yeah. And you figure out what you want to achieve financially. And then you set those goals and you can set a path to that. And you can be, and you can pay off that debt and you can make it work. And it's, it's, it's the person's behaviors that controls that much more than the actual amount of money coming in the door. Yeah. I was, I was just going to say like, what's so great about that is, is the behavioral part that you guys are approaching, right? Mm-hmm. Because it really is a mindset. It's, it's not just like, here are the instructions, follow the plan, yeah. right? Like, because that's your be, plan, not my plan. Exactly. Yeah. It's someone yeah. else's plan put upon yeah. you. Right. Um, and when it's your own personal finances, it's, you know, it's not your job anymore. It's, it's a personal thing. So it's just a different, different spectrum in your brain too, that you're, how you're dealing with it and mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. Um, that's really admirable. I really love that. That's, that's great. And a, and a super big need that we have with our military families. Awesome. Well, Tony, I want to just say thanks for yeah. uh, coming here today and spending some time with us on uh, the Armed and Ready podcast. It was really cool. And um, if people want to look to either get involved to volunteer or even to donate, or if they need to reach out and ask for help, yeah, what's what's the best way for them to find? Uh, the best place is just go to our website. So apply for services, apply to be a volunteer, figure out how you want to participate either through funding or goods or a drive or somehow. Uh, it's all done through our website. So that's Team Step USA, T E A M S T E P USA dot org. Okay. You see it there. And then if you need to contact me or anybody else, you can do it through there. All right. Well, thanks again, Tony. I appreciate you being here. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for checking out today's episode. If you have any questions about the guests on the show, please reach out to me at valoanguy.us.